We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which company has been recorded, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation. We respect their continuing culture and the past and present contributions they have made to this region. You're listening to Company, the podcast connecting Australian artists, where we talk all things personal, professional and spiritual. Joining you, as always, are your hosts, Georgia Kennedy and Tiana Catalano. Welcome back to Company. And we have a very exciting episode this week with Mr. Perfect. (laughs) We were so, so lucky to have a... uh, fellow friend and teacher over here in Perth to link us up with Eddie Perfect and he was so generous with us this past week and gave us such a great what like hour and a half it was a long chat yeah uh yeah it was insane and very inspiring and he we had a list of questions and he just just went for it we didn't even ask questions he was just you know no yeah we definitely went rogue um but it was awesome it was great to not ask questions that we'd pre-prepared and he kind of answered him throughout the discussion anyway um but it was amazing it was really challenging and interesting um and yeah as you say inspiring chat so we're very keen to share it with you yes and just an fyi we had changed venues this week yes. so if you can hear a little grasshopper sound in the background it's george's fridge <laughs> it's my Goddamn fridge. <laughs> we got like a second fridge off Marketplace, side note, and it makes a beeping noise. It's horrendous. Ten minutes before the episode, like, like talking with him, I was like banging my fridge and like turning it off and doing everything I could to try to make it stop. It Towards the end of the interview, it stopped, but it was kind of there the whole time, so I do apologize for that. Student life, what are you going to do? Yeah. Anyway, before we start, let's go with a riff of the week. So my riff of the week is one of the best hip hop albums of all time. Uh, so it's the Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Now this was an album that came out in 1998. So I was one years old when it came out. Um, So I've never actually listened to the whole album in succession. I've heard little bits of the album. I think everyone's heard like Doo-Wop and what's another big one from it that people might know. Her version of Can't Take My Eyes Off Of You. There are incredible hits on this album, but I've never listened to the full thing. And last week I decided to, and it is absolutely incredible it's it's kind of like a concept album about love and there are sort of montages of her talking to high school kids about what love means it was an incredible success at the time I think older people don't need to hear this it was nominated for 10 Grammy Awards she won five she was the most prolific female hip-hop artist of the time and paved the way for a lot of female hip-hop and R&B artists now. A lot of the songs from the album are sampled now, like Nice For What, Joke Song. Love that. Yeah, so that's a sample from the album and so many other songs have been sampled from it. Um, A couple of my favourites are Zion, which is about her baby that she had when everyone told her not to. Um, Do Up, that thing, obviously, can't take my eyes off of you, but the whole album is absolutely 
effing incredible. So definitely, definitely check it out and listen to the whole thing in succession. It's amazing. Hell yeah. Well, my riff of the week is a book that I've had for a long time. And I think I've said it before on the podcast. I'm not very good at reading because my attention span is all over the place, but I've been really trying. I've been keeping the book in my car and just reading it when I get somewhere early because I tend to do that. I, I don't like getting caught in traffic. I'd rather drive somewhere like an hour early and sit there for 40 minutes rather than sit in traffic. So the book is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. And I have started it probably about six times, mm-hmm. uh, but I am the furthest I have ever been in it. And there was one part of it that I really wanted to talk about this week on the podcast because it's something that I would love for us to delve into later on. And it's this idea of being scared to be seen for our um, imperfections and our vulnerabilities. And I think as a woman in this industry, I find it very hard to be the true me on social media uh, in terms of I struggle with really bad acne and I'm constantly having that pressure of, well, I can't put myself up there if I'm not looking 100% or, you know, feeling beautiful. And I just loved this part of the book and I wrote it down, so I'm going to try and rephrase it as best possible. And it's Brene talking about watching Ellen DeGeneres and just loving, you know, the goofiness and, you know, her just being her true self on the screen and everyone loves Ellen, maybe not so much now with all the controversy, controversy, but, you know, talking to her husband going, oh, I just love her and she's just being so goofy and I just wish I could be like that and have no inhibitions and her husband responding with, well, that's the part of you that I love the most when I see that part of you. And I just, yeah, I don't know. It just touched me a bit because I thought of like people that I like to see on the screen and Georgia and I were talking about this yesterday and we love Tony Collette and it's not for anything other than her putting her whole self in every role that she does. I never feel like she's left any part untouched or unshown. She just, it's all there, whatever it is good, bad, ugly, embarrassing, whatever, it's there and that is so human and that's something that I really want to work on as a performer and hopefully be a good role model for girls because I don't feel like I've had the most nurturing kind of environment to grow up in in this industry and I really want to change that for younger women today and boys as well. There's so much that comes with it for men and women and everyone in between and I think we need to embrace the imperfection and embrace the vulnerability. Mm. Show our true selves, show up in the arena, as Brene would say. Yes, I love that analogy. And I love that. Amazing riff. Eddie Perfect is one of Australia's most diverse, respected and prolific writer, composer, performers. He's won multiple awards for his work, both as a performer and writer, and most recently wrote the music for Beetlejuice the Musical on Broadway, which was nominated for eight Tony Awards. Some of Eddie's television credits include Offspring, Kath and Kim, Stingers, Blue Healers, and Spicks and Specs, and theatre credits include Bat Boy, The Big Con Keating the Musical, Shane Warne the Musical, Misanthropology, and The Three Penny Opera. Eddie has written and toured several shows, including, but not limited to, Angry Eddie, Cliffhanger, Catch a Falling Star, The Big Con with Max Gillies and Drink Pepsi Bitch. He has composed music for multiple Malthouse Theatre productions and has also performed music for the Helpman Awards, Augie, Inside Film Awards and for Network 10's Offspring. 
This is a very condensed version of his credits, so be sure to check out the full thing in our episode bio. Hey, Eddie, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's lovely to see you in Perth where you're not locked down like in Melbourne. It's nice to see two humans like physically next to each other. It's amazing. Yeah. Look, I can't imagine what's going on over there and I'm really, really feeling for everyone over East because it's it's crazy. It's pretty boring. It's pretty boring. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're all right. Every week, you know, like every, most people are um, – like us are pretty grateful, you know, I'm going to roof over our head and, you know, we've got, um, you know, we've got food and all the things that you need and it's fine. It's just, uh, it's a little hard and a little scary for, um, you know, the performing arts. And then it's just difficult seeing how much less restricted the rest of the country is. It used to be, we're all sort of, you know, all in this together like that Ben Lee song that does my head in. But, um, now, it sucks that, you know, one state is doing it harder than another and, you know, people mm. are growing ups are throwing their toys out of the cot a little bit at the moment. So um, hopefully we get through it. Lower numbers, so we'll see. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's been some, you know, really amazing things that are coming out of people having time to reflect and, you know, find what they're passionate about. And one of them is Sparrow Mentors, which you have opted to be one. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Actually, um uh, I've been thinking a lot, a lot about, um, you know, mentoring because now I sort of feel like I've had enough experience to potentially, you know, be of use to somebody. Um, and Sean just called at the right time. It was like, um, are you interested in this? And I, and I really am because there's not really, as far as I can tell formally or, or informally, like, um, you know, much by way of uh, music theatre composition, you know, what, there's no sort of process. People just sort of do it. You know, they are, they do a music degree or they well, they drift into it and they, just, they kind of do it. And it's interesting to me to try and um, um, work with, you know, other writers and expose them to kind of what the process is like um, and you know, to maybe, you know, work with somebody who was interested in that. Cause I, I, I do give advice and help out lots of people when they talk to me, but it's never been formalized. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I think it's a really cool idea. It's something that would have really been up my alley when I was, um, I was younger. I did a little bit of that when I was at Whopper. I, um, um, David King and when Nick Enright was alive, David King and Nick Enright were writing a musical called The Good Fight and they needed a research and development student to work on it to basically just kind of like um, shadow the production and watch rehearsals and sit in and, and just kind of like, um, uh, you know, kind of keep a record of what was going on. And that was amazing and it, it led me to be able to talk to you know, both David King and Nick Enright about their work. But, you know, I learned like really there was some fundamental things that I learned at that. Like the biggest thing that I learned um, from Nick Enright was a really important lesson that I, and I still use today. And that is um, they did a workshop showing and afterwards they had the, there was an audience, an invited audience, and they were sort of random. But at the end, the audience got to ask questions, make, suggestions and give feedback and 
one of the recurring pieces of feedback that came from the audience was that in in the second act, it's sort of it's really um, like a sliding door story. It's about Les Darcy, the boxer who di- who didn't go to war, and then this fictional friend that he had who did, who lived the sort of life that you know Les Darcy might have lived if he had um, if he had joined. Um, and the friend dies. Friend dies in in World War One. God, I can't even remember. Anyway, um, uh, and the overwhelming feedback from the audience was that that was unnecessary. That um, it was kind of gratuitous, and um, it sort of um, you know that they that, that didn't see why this character needed to die in this show. So afterwards, in my sort of exit interview with Nick Enright, I was like, so, I mean, obviously you're going to look at that, you're going to change that. And he's like, fuck no, no way. He said, you know, this drama is designed to make people uncomfortable. What that feedback tells you is that it worked. It affected people emotionally. And as humans, we want to um, we want to be comfortable. We want to be happy. We don't, um, we don't like sadness. We don't like grief. Our, our brains are designed to head towards, you know, a kind of a, a, um, you know, an equilibrium of satisfaction and happiness and safety, but that makes shit ass drama. So I'm going to leave that in there because it, uh, it obviously affected people. And I was like, Oh, that's, I had no idea. Um, that you interpreted feedback rather than just doing what people said. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, totally. I mean, that's something that happens in across all industries. And, you know, we, we even see it happen um, in politics where, you know, they'll put a focus group together and, you know, people will go, you know, you, you should do this and this, this, but people don't really know what you should do. They just have an emotional reaction to things and you kind of need to lead you kind of need to lead in certain circumstances. What's that great Henry Ford quote? Henry Ford, the inventor of the of the motor car, said, "If I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses." <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, we had like an interesting conversation about Carousel because Whopper did it two years ago, and the response to the ending was not good from, you know, mostly we would have heard from students mm-hmm. and whatever. And I kind of like had a conversation with a few people being like, well, the whole idea, I think the quote in the musical is like, um, do you ever feel like when you get hit, it's like a kiss from your partner? Cause like there's oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. violence. <laughs> um, yeah. And that really hit people the wrong way. And I was like, well, isn't that the point? Because it's not like we live in a world where that doesn't happen anymore. That is still present in our society that women have this toxic, women and men, whatever, either way, have toxic relationships where being physically abused is a act of love and that's how they see it and that's how they feel it. So I was like, well, is that really, you know, wrong then? Like if we're trying to, you know, show that that's happening, do you not put it in? Or do you, you know what I mean? Like we kind of need to be provoked and go, whoa, that's so wrong. And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's still happening. Even today, yeah. even though that was a period piece, Rogers and Hammerstein, it's still happening today. You know, so I think there are a lot of conversations like well, that. That's, and- a, that's a really big issue. I mean, that, that, that issue, I mean, I saw that play out, um, on Broadway because we were in the same season as Tootsie and there was sort of like there was controversy about Tootsie 
which, you know, if you sat in the house and watched that show, which I did, you know, very, very funny, very kind of like traditional musical in, in a lot of respects, very well constructed. But, you know, um, there was a lot of protest from the trans community about it. And I wanted to understand what those concerns were. And I read a lot of stuff from people. I mean, people who are generous enough to kind of share it. There is a little bit of like a, well, if you don't, you know, it's not my job to educate you. And I'm like, well, you want to shut something down. I would like to know what the reason is. And so I read a lot of stuff and, you know, it was, it was quite the, quite um, theoretical. Um, And interestingly, the, the, the kind of problem through a trans lens sort of usurped what I thought was, um, you know, probably the more obvious issue that you could take with it if you were really taking it um, seriously, which, you know, I don't think anyone was suggesting they should. The idea that, a, you know, a, a failed male actor um, on Broadway turns himself into a woman and suddenly his career takes off because being a woman is fucking easy, right? Just be a woman and you'll get all the jobs. You know what I mean? And the, you know, you could hear the, the, you know, the female performers of New York's eyes rolling back in their head, like, you know, nobody's business. Um, but that didn't seem to be the, <laughs> the problem that kind of um, hampered it. But yeah, there is a kind of a tendency. Um, look, it's a very complicated thing about who gets to tell what stories. Um, you know, I, I've written some pretty objectionable characters in pretty objectionable worlds. And I've, um, you know, I've received a lot of um, criticism, but it's generally from younger people who, I mean, this is really unfair. I mean, you always have to kind of analyze stuff, but, um, you know, I, I wrote a play called The Beast, which is really, you know, I said sort of glibly to the cast, but I, I, I believe it. It's about six assholes who think that they're good, who whose journey is they discover they're assholes. And, um, you know, it was generally younger people that had a real problem with some of the horrible shit that came out of those characters' mouths, you know, whether they were, you know, um, there is a there is a sense that if a character says something racist, then the author is racist, or the play is promoting racism, or it's condoning racism. And I'm like, uh, well, no, people are people are racist. Like people are fucking racist everywhere. You know, you I mean, have you ever been in a cab? I mean, it's it, it's what happens. I don't. I'm not really interested in presenting this incredibly woke um, world where all the all the values are perfect and perfectly aligned. I think that, you know, um, a lot of that, sometimes that criticism can come from younger people who it's, it's right in the front of their mind, these issues, you know, why isn't anyone doing anything about these issues? And that's really, that's really great. And then um, it spills over into, well, then everything I see needs to um, promote these values of mine. And that is also great, except for the fact that what is what we think we is perfectly ideologically impenetrably sound now is not going to be in twenty years' time. So you might go, "This is I, I know how the world should be. It needs you know this ratio of people." And I'm not saying that shouldn't shouldn't endeavour to obviously 
um, deal with issues like representation and all those sorts of things. But, um, but the idea that you have cracked the code for um, human values is I think something you um, disavow yourself of as you go along, because even the, the language and the ideas that I played with when I was your age um, at drama schools coming out of drama school, I wouldn't do now. Now, now the world is a, has moved on. It's a different place. And some of those things that we look back on, the things that we said, the things that we felt, the things that we did, and we're like, oh, God, you know. I can see a, a future in which it is completely morally unjustified to eat meat. I can just see that future. And I can see it potentially being an issue where we're like, I can't believe people did that. I can't believe, you know, I'm not saying it's equal to slavery, but obviously we abhor the idea of slavery now, but it was perfectly normal when at the time, you know, to own human beings to do the work for you. The idea that you could enslave animals, breed them, keep them confined in torturous conditions and then kill them and eat them en masse, you know, it's possible that in the future we might go, that was really fucked up and there was no justification for it. And maybe someone that is like, I know how the world should be now, you know, likes a, likes a bit of bacon and eggs. Maybe they're going to be like, fuck, I can't believe I did that. I think there's going to be a, a huge list of things that we can't believe we said and did and thought that change over time. And so to go back to your original um, point about carousel, Attitudes to domestic violence change, and yes, they are strange and they are toxic and they're confronting and they're challenging, but they exist. And um, what are you going to do? You just like, oh, we're not going to put a domestic violence scenario on stage because um, uh, because we don't want to, we don't want, we don't like it, we don't want to acknowledge it. It's like, well, it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Yeah, and also not. And I, I have this thing where it's like, yeah, it's uncomfortable for people to see it who haven't experienced it. But if you didn't put that on stage, and there is a woman in the audience who is going through that and has a moment where she identifies with that and goes, "Oh my god, that is so wrong!" Like that's how we provoke change within people's lives as well. And I just think that is so important. So as uncomfortable as it may be for people that haven't experienced it or don't agree with it or whatever, as you said, it's still happening. And just because we don't hear about it necessarily all the time, you know, I, yeah. Yes. I think there's no, yeah, there's so much that you've said that I have tried to articulate in my brain, but hearing you say it so eloquently is great because I think like you're right. What is the point of making palatable artwork? What does that do? Who does that serve? I don't, I, I agree that I don't really see the point in making stuff that's palatable. And I feel often as artists, I'm just speaking to an echo chamber and I'm preaching to the choir because we, we all kind of, in a way, kind of think the same like and have these same yeah. sort of values that everyone shares. But if we're, if we can make work that's not perhaps palatable or doesn't perhaps completely align with the values that we have now, can we, I don't know, can we encourage a different or a bigger audience to come and watch the art that we're making and we're always going to fuck up. We're always going to say something that's not PC. And as you say, in 20 years time, people are going to go, I can't believe you would put on a show like that, but mm, yeah, it's got to be it's maybe more to, provokers than. I think so. I mean, I, I, 
at my heart, I'm a, you know, I, I see myself as a um, commercial artist, but I also see that I work in a, uh, in a world where that commercial art can be provocative, but it, it absolutely has to um, have, um, it has to be entertaining, it has to be thrilling, it has to be engaging, it has to bring its audience with it. The idea that art doesn't have to take care of its audience, that drives me wild. It really does. Yes, things can be challenging, and I know some people have it in them to, to make art that is, um, it doesn't have massive um, appeal. But when you are not thinking about your audience or trying to create something that you think is going to be of value to an audience, I don't understand that the transaction. I don't understand the theatrical transaction. To me, it's very that's very selfish, and, I, and I'm like, you know, um, you are asking more of the audience than you are giving to them, and that's the crime because that's about the artist. That's about an ego. It's about you know their desires. Come and come and give me what I need to complete this selfish experience, which is me making this thing that you're not going to enjoy, but I want you to come and I want you to validate it for me. And I, that's a very judgmental way of putting it, but I don't like, I don't like that kind of art. I like the story. I like a fucking Pixar movie. I take my kids to see like, um, every holiday season, I have my kids to the movies to see a kids movie. I can cry all the way through that shit. I don't cry in grown up movies. I don't have that emotional response, but these stories are so well told and so beautiful. I mean, have you ever seen Coco? Like what a fucking amazing oh, film. Yeah. Like what an amazing film. Or the opening yeah. sequence to up where you're just like, Oh, you know, mm-hmm. cause that's kind of a, on my mind because we're in lockdown and we've been watching a lot of them. Um, but yeah, so I kind of have that commercial commercial thing, but I also, um, I you know, I also think that um, yeah, you, you values change, and you need to. Um, what we all know is that you that cancel culture doesn't work in life. You know what I mean? You can, I don't know, you can cancel Lizzo on the internet if you want. Oh, Lizzo, you you cancelled for whatever you said about. Beyonce, I don't know. Fuck, I'm making shit up now. Um, like, <laughs> oh, that's it, done. You're dead to me. And like, yeah, you can, but in real life, you actually have to deal with the person. You have to deal with the out, the fallout of the per- with the person. You know, um, you know, we're, de- we're in Melbourne. One, every second person has a conspiracy theory here. And if you were fighting them all day, you'd like want to top yourself. I mean, I want my dog, and I meet. You know, someone that's like, this is, you know, this is unlawful, this lockdown's unlawful or, you know, the, the COVID-19 isn't real and you're, and you're like, and I'm now, I, I kind of, I don't, wouldn't say I enjoy those conversations, but I do give them time and space. I'm like, why do you think that? Or what about this? Or, you know, I can't, you know, I can't believe we're shutting down a whole economy for people who are old and they're going to die anyway. I'm like, but what if it was, you know, what if it was your mum? Would you still be? cool with that you know you you have these conversations because i don't think the world is black and white and i don't think you just turn people on and off i think it's very complicated um but it does seem like there's a sort of a generation that are like um i my act my activism is just either you know you're in or you're out or this is right or this is wrong um and i do think it's important to be able to converse and exchange ideas with people who think differently to you because if you're an artist and you're on stage i can guarantee you that not everyone in that fucking audience thinks the same way you do 
but they still got money and they're still paying for a ticket and they still keep you, you know, in clothes and uh, with a roof over your head. And, you know, we have more in common than we don't with people. We really mm-hmm. do, even if we disagree with them. Yeah. Then we'll just be in the same position that we are now and you'll be, you'll think far left and you'll think far right and there will be no conversations and no sort of discussion around anything. And I think as well, you can't, you can't hate people up close. If you have conversations with them, I think it's really, it's really hard to hate people. And I think exactly as you say, this black and white cancel culture around things can sometimes be more problematic than it's worth. If mm. you know, if you get what I mean. I think yeah. it's, yeah. yeah. And it just makes me think like it's kind of the social media world. When you talk about that generation, it's the generation that feel that they have the power to make change through doing something as simple as unfollowing someone and they're canceled. It's done. There's no conversation. There is just an action. And I've like had power through that action to do something good that they believe in. So, yeah. 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 I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, to be honest, most of the time I just kind of go, I just like, I just listen and I don't really, um, I don't really, if, you know, I have, I have opinions, but they're also like everything else in the world. They're evolving all the time. I might think, you know, one way and then somebody has an argument that is pretty compelling and I'm like, okay, well, that's actually, that's actually interesting. And I, so I try not to also because, you know, fuck the world's full of opinions and noise and I don't really ever want to add to it. Um, so my, I guess my argument is not that progressive values are, uh, are not important. I absolutely do believe in, um, uh, progressive values and in, in equality. And, um, my argument is mostly around about how that happens or what, or where that happens or, you know, um, the validity of certain kind of claims to that. Um, and then, you know, whether or not pieces of art should be destroyed in the name of progression. I mean, I think they're all sort of up for all up for debate, but mostly I just kind of like, listen, and a lot of, I think I'm probably not alone in people that are like, God, you know, if I wander into this river, you know, I'm going to be swimming really hard for a very, <laughs> for a very long time against a very strong current. Um, so I just kind of like, you know, I watch the river go by and I just dip in and out of it when I, when I want to. Um, but yeah, I don't, um, uh, you know, I, I think if you're, I think if you're around long enough, you get to see um, ideas that were that were once progressive become a little archaic. And I think we're all, um, you know, time is a time, time is a great force that it's going to bring us all um, undone and change us in some way. I mm-hmm. think, you know, I just think it's it's amazing that people can be so fucking sure of themselves. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get that we can't sort of live in a in a fixed state of mind and I think people are so rigid with their views now and not open to flexibility and change and isn't that the whole point of life and art is that we're constantly yeah. evolving and changing? I don't know. Yeah. I think it's also important to remember that when we talk about, you know, people's views or people's attitudes, you know, like I think, I mean, get me, if, forgive me if I'm wrong, I think we're mostly talking about people on social media because that's the polarizing kind of war zone. That's a fucking epic, you know, shit show of people, you know, 
attacking people's ideas from you know, 24 hours a day. You can go into your social media and find something that pisses you off and fight with someone. And it's like, fuck, it's so exhausting. And it's not the world. It just isn't, it isn't the world. It's just the world of social media. And so I often try to remind myself to just, just to not look at it. And when it comes to making things, I just kind of make what it is I want to make. And then, um, Sometimes the feedback is not really any of my really any of my business, and I'm lucky enough that that I've you know I've had the shit kicked out of me kind of critically and enough times that um you know it's uh, and I'm still managing to to write um that I kind of like leave it alone a little bit now you know mm-hmm. someone doesn't like this thing okay fine you know like that's I guess that's the that's the point you know it's not. Um, it's my job to make something and then, um, you know, I hope that people watch it and then it's up to other people to have a conversation about it. But that conversation doesn't necessarily have to involve me. And I think that sometimes when you try and justify certain things, it really does diminish your work. And um, I'm like, yeah, be enraged, be overjoyed, be moved, be not moved, be sit there and go, I don't, I don't you know, find it hilarious, find it not funny. Um, at all, uh, that's like, that's an audience's job now. And I think, you know, performers, um, all make up their own mind what their response to that is. But I think as actors, you do have to kind of go, it's not really my conversation. They paid their ticket. They get to have an opinion. They get to have a conversation about it, but it doesn't have to involve the actor at all. You don't have to look at it. You have to read it. You don't have to get involved. You just have to like commit to what you're doing and choose projects that you think are exciting and and interesting and human and tell those stories and then I can go and have a glass of wine and then pat the dog and go to bed. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. when did you sort of decide consciously to not listen to that feedback? Was there like a point where you just decided to not listen to that and sort of enjoy the work and, and, and leave it there and then let the audience make up their own minds? <laughs> Well, um, you know, I was kind of living in a few different worlds when I first left Whopper, and one of those worlds was um, the kind of um, comedy, music comedy, you know, me on a stage with a band, I'm on stage with a piano, um, putting together, you know, shows to go in um, into festivals and then touring those shows around the country. Um, and the other world was me being an actor, uh, I did, quite a lot of work with the Malthouse Theatre and both of those worlds, in both of those worlds you're getting reviewed in the the theatrical pages of the paper. Um, With a play, you know, you turn up, there's a script. uh, If you're an actor, you turn there's a script and you work on it and you create something and you get involved with all the aspects of it. And, you know, you might have an inkling, is this going to be, this feels like it could be really good or it might not be. And then you do the show um, and it gets reviewed. And whether you read that review or not, you still have to do whatever the season is, 40 shows or whatever. Um, So I guess it's like, you know, um, read it if you're really interested, um, but don't read it if um, you think it might alter the way uh, you perform the show and that is good and bad reviews. I've seen, um, I've seen actors, uh, sort of freeze up when they've been given really bad notices and I've seen actors, um, 
just completely destroy a very well balanced um, performance by by reading really positive feedback about themselves because they uh, now become self-conscious of this moment is really amazing. I'm going to make it bigger and larger and extended or, you know, like that, that can sometimes upset the balance as well. Um, but if you can read it and be dispassionate about it, then that's fine. I think most people have an inkling of the show kind of show they're in, but when you're doing in the stand-up world or the comedy world in the self-producing world of comedy and you're doing festivals and things, um, reviews are a tool. So you, you have to read all of them because if a good review exists, you know, then you need to like cut that out and you need to staple it to a flyer and you need to hand it to another human being. And you need to do all of that when you start out yourself. It's you on the street. Come to my show. You know, four stars in the age, five stars in the Herald Sun. You know, it's like it's, it's a tool to sell your show. So you read all of them and in the process of reading all of them, you read a lot of fucking horrible reviews about yourself. And then, you know, you, I think it's like exposure therapy. You get to a point where you're like, I, um, I, uh, just used the review to sell the show. And if they don't like the show, then I don't use the review. And if they do, I do use the review, but you get to a point Well, I got to a point where I was like, I'm not, I'm not that excited about somebody saying nice things about me in a review, except for the fact that I can use it to sell my show. I don't believe it. Um, in the same way that if I get a negative review, I don't necessarily believe it, but I've also gotten good at, you know, aggregating a critical response over many reviews for clues about what might be happening in my work that I can't see, because if it's there in a lot of different reviews, then people are picking up on it, that it exists. It's not like just one person's opinion. If five people are like, fuck me, that was a really long show, or I found this confusing, or, you know, who is this character? No one ever describes this character. Or, you know, there are things where you go, well, obviously something's going wrong. And even though, I, it, it, you know, it pains me to read it, there is something to be learned here. Yeah. And, and so then who do you turn to and trust for that sort of constructive criticism and feedback on your work? Um, I mean, uh, that's, oh God, that's a really good question. I, um, I actually don't know. I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that. I'm trying to think, <laughs> yeah. of, I'm thinking of it in terms of a lot of different ways because, um, you know, um, Sometimes, sometimes it's, um, so with my writing, for example, you know, there have been points of validation. I mean, you can feel it in the house. Ultimately, I think it's the audience that tells you whether something is working or not. Um, with comedy, it's the audience. Are they laughing or not? That's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, sometimes you can make something really great, but people don't come and it's like you go, it's that, is that lack of commercial success? Is that an indication that the work isn't very good? And I don't think that's always the case. And I think that the opposite is true. You can have a massively financially, commercially successful piece that is not necessarily a great piece. And sometimes things are great, but that they arrive at the wrong time. And some things are mediocre, but they arrive at the right time and they plug into something that everybody is thinking. And times can change from the time you start writing something to the time you put it on. Um, and another indication is that people still want to work with you. You know, that's a real, that's a real big one. Um, 
you know, if you write something and it's not, it's not any good, um, then, you know, the, the phone sort of stops ringing and that's the, you know, that's the fear that people will be like, I don't, I don't rate this person. Um, yeah. And then the, you know, the other validation is sometimes, you know, I mean, I think one of the big validations for, for Beetlejuice on Broadway was the creativity it inspired in its fans. Like the, the outpouring of, um, of, of like artwork that we got at the winter garden theater that covered like the entire backstage walls of the theater. I've never seen mm. anything like it every day, like just parcels and parcels of drawings and um, comics and paintings. And, you know, they were using the, the lyrics or, you know, they, they picked a moment that meant something to them. And I'm like, people don't do that unless they, unless they they get it and they feel it. And that was, you know, that was like we've made something that speaks to people, you know. Um, and with Beetlejuice, that was very, that, that only came very late, you know, once we'd already kind of opened. It took a long time to sort of find and click with people. But when it did, you know, it was, it was, it was obvious. This is, this is a topic and characters that people, um, are inspired by, interested in, and they, and it makes them want to be creative. If you do something creative and it makes other people want to be creative in response, I mean, that, I've found that that is like the primo example of things resonating. Mm, yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And you can, I think you can sense that when you're in a company or on a creative team and you get to this point where I don't know, you kind of hit the sweet spot of maybe what the show should be about and the way that the audience is reacting. I absolutely get that sense of you can tell that you're a part of something great mm -hmm. and you're telling a story that sparks creativity or inspiration in other people. So yeah. Yeah. that's that's amazing. Yeah, and pretty that's cool amazing, that that happened. Yeah, sorry, you go. Oh, I was just going to say, but, you know, like most of the time as a, as an actor, you know, you are not in that show. You just not, you just not, you know, exactly. you know like the bulk of stuff you do is, you know, is probably just going to be, you know, okay. Like people will really enjoy it. It's going to be like the thing that like changes their life, but it, mm. you know, could be really interesting or very delicate or, you know, like, um, and then occasionally you're in stuff that is just, it's just not working and people are not enjoying it. And then you're fronting up to diminishing houses every night. And that's a very challenging thing to do, but you still need to, um, you know, commit and, and believe in your own work. And you go, well, this is, and you know, I meet actors who have been at it for 40 years and, you know, they're like, sometimes you think this is going to be the best thing and it's not. Sometimes you think this thing's an absolute dog and then it takes off and, you know, it's, you know, you, the more you do, the less you see um, each um, piece you do as like the beginning and ending of all life. It is something you're doing that people will either appreciate or not, but you're on a kind of a journey as an artist that's going to encompass a lot of successes and a lot of, a lot more failure. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm finding that too, that sort of um, giving of yourself artistically to a show and putting your, heart into it, but then also being able to let it go and, and, and not let it be, I don't know if, if things don't go well, or if it's, if the show is unsuccessful, just moving on and moving forward and, and going on to the next thing. I think it's a tricky balance of giving your heart and your vulnerability and your passion to a show, but then also being able to let that go and, and, and leave that as the door as you walk out, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that absolutely makes sense. I mean, it's very hard when, you know, you're starting out as well in, in, you know, in our industry because, um, you know, there are so many pathways and I mean, probably the most, you know, um, unlikely pathway is just auditioning for something and getting it. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of like the way, the least way things happen, you know, um, for me, I undoubtedly my success in being cast in other things has been because I made my own stuff. That that is a hundred percent why I got cast in other things. It, it wasn't auditioning. I don't. I haven't really done a lot of auditions. I mean, I've certainly done a lot of auditions, but compared to most actors, I I, I haven't because I mostly make my own work, and there I can write stuff that is in my range that I know I know I can do. Um, no one's done it before. So no one in the audience is like, well, you know, um, Michael Cormick's version was so much better. I don't know why I'm choosing Michael Cormick, but, um, uh, <laughs> you know, there's no comparison. It's you, you can do it any way you like. It's like, it's, it's, a, it, it's mm. absolutely new. So that, it, that was, that was what kind of, um, helped me and then also you know finding places where um i was really fortunate where like cre- things were being created and there was a culture of creativity that um i could plug my own personality and my own ideas into the first place was um chapel off chapel when nancy cato was the artistic director there was this incredible atmosphere of people making work and um you know, I was writing songs for other singers and there was, you know, the, the art form that was sort of really kicking them was cabaret and people were putting their own cabarets together. And so there was a lot of ways that I could either write for another artist or I could play piano for another artist um, or I could do my own shows. Um, and it was a community of people and they were interested, there was an audience there interested in ideas and it was very fertile time. And then I, um, I got cast in... Um, in uh, Babes in the Wood at um, Malthouse Theatre, right when um, uh, Michael Cantor and Stephen Armstrong had taken over the co-artistic directorship, um, before it was Playbox with Aubrey Mellor, and Aubrey Mellor is an incredible, incredible artist director who was, was 100% committed to producing 100% Australian theatre and would read like 50 scripts a day. And, you know, that was what it was, was being done. And there was some criticism of playbox in that, you know, it was sort of committed to this idea of the well-made play. And there was a lot of Australian plays being put on, but you know, that there was sort of, um, there wasn't really the, sort of the time and the nurture to, to kind of polish them and make them all they could be. So the, the theater, it's sort of, maybe it's just about time and energy, but, um, playbox was ready for new artistic directorship and, Michael and Stephen came in, they took over, they renamed it Malthouse Theatre, you know, they um, renovated the foyer, they put light boxes in. I'd been working with um, with, with um, uh, Michael Cantor, who's also a, an amazing director, and used to work with Barry Kosky and has that very visual sense of, you know, creative sort of handmade um, theatre. Um, and it, 
he used it to champion his kind of work. You know, it was a place where um, theatre and cabaret and music and opera and all these things kind of like fused together in a really creative way. And I was a part of working there at that time and that was immensely satisfying because, you know, um, Michael Cantor is not a kind of person who's like, you know, I want X, Y, Z to happen. You just got to get out there and try stuff and put stuff out there. And so that was a really amazing time. That was because I made my own work and I came in and there were little ways that I could write different things in there and get to know those people. So it's all a bloody hustle when you first leave, really. Like it's, it really is. And, you know, you just have absolutely no idea what leads to what. So you just got to, whenever anyone opens a door ajar, you go stick your foot in it, wrench it open, walk in, do the best thing you can, even if there's three people in the audience and then go to the next thing. But, you know, the people that um, I noted sort of fell by the, wayside or people that either sort of weren't um, kind of relentlessly sort of hungry enough or who kind of like blew their chances a bit. They got an opportunity and they kind of, they kind of fucked it. You know, they um, either through, you know, too much partying or they didn't look after themselves or um, they didn't, uh, they were kind of combative in the room or, um, you know, they had a kind of an attitude of being sort of like deserving and, and entitled and, um, you know, didn't pay respect to the older actors in the room. And I think that is really important. You know, you were there to study them as much as you had to get the piece right. you got to know where you are in the pecking order. And I do think it's important to walk in and go, right, uh, how this person has all of this experience. I really, you know, I need to be friends with this person. I need this person. To, I need everybody to fucking like me. I need everyone to like me and I need to be respectful. You know, if you come in, you're like, this is how I work. Everyone's like, fuck off. You're five minutes old. Get out. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And that makes me think of something that I've kind of been reflecting on while being at Whopper. And I don't know, it's that thing of like, yeah, you've got skills, that's one thing, but you as an artist is another thing. So in that way of like, you know, waiting to see what happens, like when people ask us, oh, where do you want to work when you leave? I kind of think, well, I don't know because I don't know what's happening in the industry and I don't want to just say, well, I just want to be a musical theatre person and I just want to be in the musicals and that's it because that's not me as an artist. That's the skills that I have, but that doesn't mean I couldn't just do a play. Like I'm still an actor and it's about what the play is about and the people that you can work with and stuff. So it's really really nice to hear that you kind of just went on that journey and you just, you know, stumbled into the most incredible opportunities by having that open mind and just knowing that you've got skills to use, but you don't have to let the skills lead your, you know, venture. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I look, honestly, the most of the work you do when you is whatever you can fucking get, you know, like it's, you don't really get to choose. Um, as soon as you do things that are like, this is not really, you know, if I had something better, I'd probably do that, but I don't. So I'm going to do this. And, you know, you, you learn a lot from doing that kind of stuff. I do, I do believe, but I remember being at Whopper and, and you got to tell me if this has changed and this is not necessarily a, a, a criticism. This is just a, a fact, but by, uh, by the nature of the course culturally, there was a really strong expectation that the pinnacle of what you could do when you leave 
the course is be in a show. And that was reinforced by the fact that, you know, a musical, commercial musical would come to Perth and it would have ex-graduates in it and the graduates would come to the college and then they would talk about what it's like being in a show. And it's like, you've got to be in a show. You've got to be in a show. You've got to be in a show. Is it still like that? Because you don't have to be in a show. It's just changed. It's changing. I think think, um, that Crispin, the um, acting head, has really seen, you know, lots of students come out of Whopper and go on different journeys and he's very, you know, straightforward with the fact that we're not all going to be performers and that's not because we're not capable but because life takes you in different directions and all that kind of stuff. And now they're actually implementing more roles that you can do um, like for we're doing um, a chorus line right now and Doug and myself have been put as assistant directors so that not only are we getting the performing experience but we're also understanding what happens in a production team and everything that happens there because Crispin is wanting to connect that, yes, you have one part of you that's your artistry and then you have you as an entrepreneur and that means that you could delve into so many different kinds of things but it's still connected to what you've studied at WAPA. So it is changing and I think we do mostly hear from artists in forums about the shows that they're in, mostly because they're coming to Perth on tour, you know, so you kind of yeah. just get the artists in that are on yeah. tour. But having Zoom during COVID, we actually got to hear from a whole different group of artists that are doing totally different things. And we even had like the um, most recent Australian cast of Chorus Line, those Whopper grads in like a big Zoom chat and just hearing where all of they, like all of them have ended up and what they're doing right now. Yeah, I think it's really starting to open up now probably because of COVID and having time to reflect and go well what's going to benefit these people if they can't or if they don't go on that journey to do shows which is so cool yeah I also think you know there's a little bit of a language thing that needs to change because you know um uh you know the idea that you know um you might do something other than performing has generally been viewed as like a, you didn't make it or you couldn't make yep. it. But you know yeah. what? I actively choose, I really do choose not to perform as much because you know why? It, it's not as good. It's not as good as writing. You have to fucking do it eight times a week. You have to worry about your voice. You know what I mean? You're always like, oh, in the shower in the morning. How How is it today? How's it going to yeah. go? You know, like you don't have control. You don't decide when you're in the room and when you're out of the room. You have to kind of be there. Um, it's frustrating. It's kind of scary. It consumes your evenings when, you know, I would rather be, you know, hanging out with my wife and wife and kids. I mean, yes, I'll do it every now and then. And I, you know, I really love it, but the idea of, you know, I don't get the same vibe acting in something and getting applause at the end of it as I do writing something, being at the back of the theater, being 100% anonymous. Like that was, that was New York for me. No one knew who I was, which is terrific. And when people laugh and when they applaud and when they're moved and they cry, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not making it happen, but I get hundred percent satisfaction from that. Absolute hundred percent satisfaction. And I can go home while the second act's still going, I can, eat, I can go eat Thai food. Do you know what I mean? I'm lazy. I don't have to do any yeah. of that shit. So yeah. that's, that, that is, and that is because I think studying music theatre as a performer is the best 
place to start for anyone, whether you're going to be a, you know, a director or a designer or a composer or, or a book writer or a playwright or whatever it is that you're going to potentially pivot to, but within the same, um, within the music theatre world, having been a music theatre performer, you know, you, you know, you know what's singable, you know what sounds good, you know what feels good, you know, you know what I mean? And you get to study um, scripts and scores from the inside out. Like I did South Pacific and I was like, holy shit, the way this is like a, an iconic show, but it's so interesting how it holds together. I mean, it doesn't open with an opening number. It opens with a fucking scene that goes for 12 minutes between Nellie Forbush and what's the French farmer guys? I can't fucking remember. Oh. Anyway, Emile, Emile. Uh-huh. Yeah, anyway. And, um, um, and it's got like, it's got like, um, my memory is a bit hazy, but like uh, at least two sort of songs in it. I think she sings Cockeyed Optimist. Just sings a song in the middle of the scene and it stops. And, and then yeah. he sings, I think, Some Enchanted Evening. I think, and Love that's that the opening. There's no, and then it's not until like 15 minutes into the show that you get, you know, bum, 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 bloody Mary is the girl. And the CBs come out, sailors come out and there's bloody Mary and they do, there's nothing like a dame. And we're into the, then we see the world, but it starts in this farmer's fucking hut on a hill with a, with a French planter who is living in the South Pacific and this sort of nurse, and you're like, what? What is? Who are these people? And they're, you know, they're kind of like flirting. And what is? What is going on? It's an amazing way to start a musical. And you get to, yes, you can get the script. Yes, you can get the score, and you can kind of look at it. But when you're in it, you you get a feeling from the inside out. How is this made? And how does this work on audiences? And how do we? How is this being? How is this built? And then how do we do it? How do we make? It? And when you got to write something, then you know you've got all that stuff. You know what it feels like. You know what it feels like to sing a shit song eight shows a week. So you don't want to write anyone a shit song. Like that is, I know that sounds like a <laughs> obvious, obvious thing to say, but how many shows have you done when there's like a kind of a, it's a shitty song and you're like, Oh God, I'm writing songs and I'm like, yeah, it feels good now. But imagine, I just imagine myself singing in eight shows a week and I'm like, no, I would kill myself. I'm cutting this bloody song. I'm cutting it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> So that stuff is really important. Directing once you've been a performer is really is really useful. Um, and I think, yes, the language of, um, you know, some of you won't make it, so you can all just take this massive step down to doing something else in the industry and just suck it up while the amazing people – I mean, fuck that. Some people don't want to be in the ensemble of cats in Korea for 15 years. Like, I mean, hello, who wants to do that? Are you insane? Do you know what I mean? So I think that that is great that the culture of you just got to be in a show is imp- is kind of like, I think it's good that that's being dislodged. And I think it's important to go, um, we evolve, we change all the time. Yes, it's possible to say no to performing for reasons other than you're not good enough. Some people just don't like it that much. You know what I mean? They just don't. Yeah. I did TV yeah. and that was like boring. That's boring. TV is fucking boring but it helps with everything else <laughs> it does it's like it's like it's interesting for a bit and then you're like oh god and it's fine no no one says that every minute of your life has to be dynamic and exciting but you act about three minutes a day and you're there for 15 hours so it's not a lot of acting um 
and it can become a little bit about everything outside of the acting and the, and the, but Jesus having a you know having a profile was useful. It means you can walk to a theatre company and go, "Hey, I want to write a play," and the artistic director is like, "Yeah, cool." You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a tool again. It's a it's a really useful tool, and um, I would much rather be writing for TV or directing TV or you know that that's what interests me. That you know being the person that gets to be in the edit when you're an actor, you do shit and you're like, I was acting my fucking ass off all day. And it's just like the back of my head. That's all that's, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, this is about me, but I mean, you, you don't have control over what goes on the, on the screen. And I am much more interested in making the thing than being inside the thing. Yeah. And is, is that something that you learned that you were more interested in doing that or while you were training, we were going, nah, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to make my own shit as well. Well, it, it, I kind of – I just wasn't getting it. I mean, because <laughs> I failed as a performer, uh, I think that's probably true. I did a lot of auditioning when I left. I was like, yeah, I've got to, um, you know, I've got to get into a show. I auditioned for lots of shows. But at the age I was and the experience I was, I was obviously auditioning for ensemble, you know, not for not for roles. And, you know, I'm not a great dancer, um, not, you know, I'm not a tenor. Um, and I was a bit, a little bit too much, a little too idiosyncratic to kind of fit into a, into an ensemble. And so, you know, that just didn't happen for me. So I was like, okay, we'll just go, I'll just take my bat and ball and I'll just play my own game. That was literally what it what it was yeah but the big turning point was i had um i had auditioned for melbourne theater company's production of urine town that simon phillips was directing this is a long time ago and at the same time i had um i decided i wanted to put up my first show angry eddie in the melbourne comedy festival and the date for registration in the comedy festival was looming and i was um i was on hold for this Steve, on hold for so many fucking things. On hold is just the most annoying thing. You're like, what, what the hell does that mean? You know, it, all it means is your agent rings you and says, "Don't, don't change your hair." Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to change my hair. I, uh, and then I was like, I really want to do this musical at Melbourne Theatre Company, but I also really want to do my own thing at, um, at, you know, at the Comedy Festival. And if I let the registration date lapse and I don't get the musical, then I would have nothing. But right now I have the control to be able to absolutely do the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I I can decide that and I can pay the 400 bucks for the registration and that will happen. And I'm like, I'm going to do that. So I rang my agent and I said, can you tell them I don't, um, I'm, you know, withdrawing because I'm going to do the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and they were like, okay. Um, And, you know, I may never have gotten that gig anyway, but I went to Melbourne Comedy Festival and that completely changed my life. That went went from me kind of, am I a writer, am I an actor, to going, oh, I can make my own shows now and I can tour them and I don't do that. And then that led to me going, I want to be more ambitious and I want to write a musical. Um, And then that led to me, you know, um, getting other performing work. But in terms of the writing, it led me to, you know, I wrote a play and I wrote a TV script and I wrote things that I wasn't 
in for the first time and I was like, oh, hallelujah. You know, it's not about my performing. It's about the words and the world. Um, And, you know, kind of like snowballed to where I am now. So that's really, that was sort of the defining moment where I made a decision. And I think that is something that is really important for, um, you know, graduates um, is you've really got to, no one's going to back you. You've got to back yourself. You know, you've got to, mm-hmm. Everything that is like worth doing is a real big, scary risk and you, you have to do it. <laughs> and you are the, the biggest, one of the biggest inspirations I have of Australian people of just backing yourself, putting yourself out there and the amount of work and the amount of amazing things that you've created is absolutely insane. So no, oh, thank you. Very inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that's good. It doesn't really feel very inspiring we- from the inside. It's so inspiring to us. No, it is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, I'm really lucky that I discovered, I just really accidentally discovered songwriting really later in life. Actually, while I was at WAPA, you know, I was like, oh, um, maybe I'll write, you know, songs for the theatre. And then there was obviously heaps of people on hand to perform those songs and lots of opportunities to put them up. And that, and that is where I was like, you know, in my third year, I worked with the first year students in one of the performance slots. I took it off from the musical that my class were doing and I workshopped a song cycle and I, and I did that. I remember performing that with the class and going, oh, this is so much more satisfying than acting. And that was a, that was a little kind of poison in the chalice that, um, that never left, you know, it never left. It kind of grew. I, I really, I really love it. I love doing it. I find it frustrating and sometimes it's very depressing and it's lonely and it's weird and it's unpredictable, but the actual, you know, the actual work of going, who is this character? What do they want to say now? Um, how are they going to say it? How musically are they going to express it? How do I want the audience to feel? All those issues are there every time you sit down with the blank page, every time you sit at the piano and it's still absolutely sort of thrilling and exciting to me seeing it on in my mind's eye on this imaginary stage or an, or an imaginary screen. And, you know, I know very, I remember very clearly in my twenties feeling like I would never get a chance to do what I, what it is that I feel like I was, you know, put here to do. And like I had an apartment like yours, I see in the background and I remember just lying on the kitchen floor and just being like, everything is fucked. This is fucked. And I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to do it. I've got all of these ideas. I've got all of this energy. I'm 26 or whatever. And I've got like, you know, I want to write stuff and nobody is making anything. Nobody is doing anything. Nobody knows me. Nobody wants to work with me. There's no, there's no, absolutely no chances. It's just fucking worse. I just want to die. I remember that feeling. I remember that like I can feel it now. It's the worst. And that is way worse than doing something and failing at it. I would take that like any day of the week. Like the idea that, oh my God, what if this doesn't, what if people don't like it or they don't come? I'm like, fucking don't worry about that. Worry about just not ever getting to do it. You get to do it, fucking everything's just up. Whatever happens, happens. So now I'm like the idea of, the idea of writing something and some, that somebody's going to listen to, even if it's like a demo that one other person's going to listen to, that is like, so excited. I'm pitching on something that I, that I had to sign an NDA on, so I can't tell you what it is, but I know that, you know, I'm one of, you know, a handful of writers on a shortlist 
And I'm like, fuck yeah. Like I get to write something and when they get all the songs, I don't know how many they are, they sit in a boardroom and they listen to all the songs. So you go, okay, well, this is going to be heard by like a bunch of people in a meeting room in America. I'm like, that is so exciting to me. I'm like, great. You got a, you know, you got a chance to fucking put a fire under someone's ass. And I really, I really like that. It's like, just open the door a little bit and I'll, just, I'll yank it open and, yeah. and, and shove myself through because, you know, you really don't, you know, opportunities are scarce, especially in Australia. You get an opportunity, you fucking just grab it with both hands and you absolutely wrestle it to death and do the best possible job you can do. That's all you can do. Fucking love that. Final thing we wanted to ask you is what are your hopes for the industry, the arts industry in the future and what would you like to see change? Well, I am... I always oscillate between two things. One is like um, wanting to uh, uh, up the rate of um, music theater creation in Australia, but then you know I have to balance that against the um, fact that I don't want to turn myself into an, an administrator because I'm a writer. I want to write stuff. I don't want to like spend all of my energy necessarily facilitating other people writing uh, at the expense of writing myself. So that's a hard thing to do. But what, so I'm, what I would like to see is I would like to see a greater um, uh, collaboration between New York and Australia. And I think that's, that's possible. Um, uh, And I think it's about co-producing things that either start in Australia and then travel overseas. or things that even, you know, I've got a project that starts in a couple of projects that start in, in North America, but I would, I would really like to, to maybe create, do some creative development in Australia or to, you know, start bringing in some of the creatives in Australia. And I think that's just, I think that's sort of, um, you know, I, I write from Melbourne and, and then, you know, email off things overseas. So I think that it's, it's possible to work remotely. And I think that this pandemic, if there's anything good that's come of it, is this realisation that, you know, that work and development can keep happening even if we're not physically together. And it doesn't really matter as long as you're as long as I'm willing to eat it on the time difference and get up at 2am or 5am or whatever. Like, um, you know, there's no reason we can't always be in contact. And so I, I, I think the more cross pollination, I'm hoping that economically there's a way, um, to entice, um, creative development in New York to use Australia as part of its development, um, to use Australian producers and American producers. So, um, I figure the best way to do that is just to make something and then, you know, draw in people from different places. Um, but I think that's, um, I think that's something that absolutely would benefit um, uh, Australians and I think it would benefit Americans too. And I just think that um, uh, a concerted effort needs to be made in Australia to um, to stop this reliance on imported product and to start making our own things. It really, it really is like the only leg of the arts in Australia that doesn't have its own national voice. It really is. You mean fucking hell. There's Australian contemporary dance companies, but there's no Australian music theatre company, you know. No yeah. offence to contemporary dance, but, I mean, 
people go to music theatre a lot more than they go to contemporary dance. We've got audiences, we've got performers, we've got directors, designers, we've got amazing theatres. When people bring their shows here from overseas, they're often saying it's the best version of the show they've ever seen, even greater than the original New York cast, and we can do it. It's got to fucking make it. You know what I mean? That's what we've got to do. I don't know. I don't know how to do that, but we'll we'll figure something out. Find a way. Mm. 100%. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. It's awesome. It's a pleasure, guys. And that well, just enjoy went your, like that. Uh, <laughs> enjoy your togetherness. I'm about to go yeah. for a socially isolated walk with my wife and kids. Beautiful. Yes. Mm. Are the kids at school or no? The kids. They are at school. They do remote schooling. So school is a laptop. Oh. They're both oh, uh, wow. on laptops all day. So it's been like that for a very long time and it's hard on them because you know they're kids and they want to hang out with their mates so absolutely yeah. it sucks it sucks mm. rough fucking year yes fucking yeah yeah crazy yeah well thank you so much thank for you. taking the time to pleasure. talk to us oh, yeah, no, it's a really pleasure talking it. to you that was an absolutely incredible interview definitely one of my favorites um really appreciate eddie being so open with us and not holding back in what he had to say. And it was awesome. I, I learned a lot. Yeah. I really appreciated how candid he was about everything and tried to just give us his honest, honest opinion and perception and whether that's, you know, right, wrong, whatever. He just put it out there. And I'm so inspired to just make stuff. And I feel really confident after hearing that, that, you know, Georgia and I are doing something good by just, you know, persisting with the podcast because we care about it. We care about people. We care about the artists that make the, you know, shows that we see and stuff like that. So I'm really, really, really grateful to Eddie for talking to us about that. Mm, And we'd love to have a chat with you about this interview and the stuff that we talked about as well. So make sure to jump onto our Instagram or our Facebook and chat with us about it because he brought up some really important topics that I think we should be talking about as artists at the moment and as people. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Company. If you'd like to see more from Eddie, you can check out his Instagram at Eddie Perfect or listen to his latest soundtrack for Beetlejuice, the musical. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So come check us out on Instagram at Company Pod or our Facebook Company Podcast. Thank you to our producing guru, Douglas Rintel, our media queen, Deidre Koo, also known as Deedle Dumb Designs, and our music man, David Duquettis. We'll see you next time. Bye.